J.I. Packer once said, generosity is the focal point of God's moral perfection, the quality which determines how all God's other excellences are to be displayed. The truth is generosity is at the very core of who Christ is, which means, of course, generosity should be at the core of who we are, at the center of every Christian life. There should be a generous heart. In fact, generosity should be one of the defining characteristics of every one of our lives, one of the defining characteristics that identify us with Jesus Christ. And, and man, don't you just love generous people anyway? Uh, I sure do. Not just generous with their stuff, but I mean people who are generous with their time and their affection and their attention, people who are generous in patience and grace with pretty much whatever they have. And the, the truth is, generous people are wonderful people to be around because at their core, they're givers. It's, it's a fundamental part of their makeup. And so when you're around a generous person, you benefit from their giving nature. Because instead of thinking about themselves constantly, they're usually thinking about others, thinking about what they can give or what they can do for someone else, uh, which can be very refreshing and life-giving to be around those kind of folks. In fact, generous people can really uh, just fill your tank when you're empty because they'd rather give to you than take from you. Conversely, selfish people, greedy people can really drain your tank. Right? If you've ever been around someone who seems to only think about themselves all the time, then you know what I mean. Right? They, they talk about themselves, they think about themselves, they focus on what they want and how they feel all the time. They, they never ask you how you're doing, they, they never inquire about your needs or your life or how you feel, and, and that can be quite draining over time. In fact, if you spend too much time around selfish, greedy, self-centered people, it can suck the life right out of you. It's why uh, you see so many moms, quite frankly, uh, feeling so worn out so very often because very young children, generally speaking, think about themselves all the time, right? Little kids, babies are probably the most selfish people on earth. <laughs> yeah, and so you have all these little people who take, 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 take all the time. And you have moms, in some cases dads, who give, 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 give all the time. And it's completely exhausting. Well, listen, there are adults who are much the same way. They never seem to pour into anyone else's life. They rarely think of what they can do for others because they're takers. Uh, they're always looking for what they can get from other people. Now, to be fair, uh, those are probably the two extremes, right? Between people who are extravagantly generous and those who are excessively selfish or greedy. The truth is most of us probably fall somewhere in between those two extremes. I think, I think most of us genuinely want to do for others at times, and yet there are also times when we want to do for ourselves, and that's especially true, by the way, when it comes to money, right, which is, is not a subject that we really talk about much around here. I was just uh, looking back this week, in fact, this two-part sermon that uh, we're going to start today, this will be the third time since I started the church 11 years ago that I've preached a sermon related to money or giving. And uh, by the way, I'm not proud of that. I'm not wearing that like a badge, it's just the truth. Because number one, you've always been a generous church, and number two, as a rule, I preach through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, 
until we complete a book, Old Testament, then New Testament, back and forth, and then we move on to the next one. So I just don't typically preach topical sermons. But I'm just going to tell you, after a lot of prayer and consideration about where we're going next, as you know, we just finished the book of Revelation, I have felt compelled to share this sermon today and next week, and then we'll start a new series after that uh, for reasons that will be made clear as we work through this this two-part sermon. Uh, But in short, it's the right time to have this conversation, okay, as the Lord leads us in His Word to do so. Martin Luther said, the highest worship of God is the preaching of the Word. And so uh, even though this is a topical sermon, I want you to understand, I'm not saying to you, I have a word for you today. I I grew up in church here and pastors, great men, by the way, but they would say, I have a word for you today. I'm not saying I have a word for you today. Uh, I'm telling you God has a word for you today on this particular characteristic of who he is and how that relates to who you are. And so this week and next, we're going to talk about generosity because number one, it's the right thing to do. And number two, generous giving by healthy, thriving, growing people is one of the ingredients that fuels healthy, thriving, and growing churches. Uh, In fact, believe it or not, I was looking at statistics this week about giving in the American church. And interestingly, Christians tithe far less of their income today than they did during the Great Depression. In fact, while our wealth has skyrocketed more than any time in our history, our giving has plummeted. And so this morning, we're going to concentrate primarily on the spiritual aspects of giving. And then next Sunday, we're going to take a look at the practical aspects of giving as we discuss some of the vision for this church moving forward. We're going to talk about where that's going to go and where we think we're headed, okay? Uh, And as we talk about giving, I'll just tell you my prayer for me and you is that no matter where you happen to be on that continuum, that scale of generosity, whether you're already very generous or maybe not so much, my prayer and my hope is that through this two-week study in God's Word that we will all become more generous people as we discover together the heart of Christ on the matter. Because as it turns out, God's Word has a lot to say about being generous. And as always, our great example to follow is Jesus Himself. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, which will be our primary text for this message. We'll start with the first two verses. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, the first two verses. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Uh, okay, so what Paul's talking about here in this letter to the church is a relief fund, money specifically, that the Corinthian Christians are giving to support the ministry in Jerusalem, which was a part of the church's uh, ongoing outreach. Acts 11, 29, and 30 describes a previous collection of funds for the Jerusalem church. It says the disciples determined every one of them according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And those previous funds were sent because of a coming great famine in Jerusalem during the reign of Claudius, which was prophesied by Agabus. He was one of the first century prophets 
to the church in Antioch. So God not only informed and prepared the church for what was coming ahead of time through the church leaders, but he also provided the money that would be needed for the church in Jerusalem to continue its ministry through the giving of the church members at Antioch and elsewhere. And then here in Corinth, in our story today, Paul is once again coming to collect money from the church that will be used to support the ministry in Jerusalem. And in verse 1 of our text, when Paul refers to the ministry for the saints, uh, the word ministry in the original Greek is uh, diakonia. It's the exact same word that's translated as relief in Acts 11.29 that we just read when Paul was collecting money for the Jerusalem church then. And for what it's worth, he mentions this weekly collection in other places as well in first uh, the first three verses of first corinthians 16 paul says now concerning the collection for the saints as i directed the churches of galatia so you also are to do on the first day of every week that's sunday each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when i come when i arrive i will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So part of Paul's ministry as a leader in the church is to collect money from the church and distribute it where it is needed to fund the ministry that God has set before them. Let's keep reading verses 3 through 5. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So uh, Paul is not only asking for the church to consider giving to the ministry, he actually expects them to give willingly and generously, which begs the question, why is Paul so assuming as to expect the church members to give so lavishly toward the ministry. Well, let's keep reading and we'll see verses 6 through 10. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So in verse 9, when Paul says that he's distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, he's quoting Psalm 112.9, which is not only a description of the righteous followers of God who give freely or generously, but it's also a reflection of Jesus Christ who distributed freely to us. And in that, Paul is painting a picture for us to show us that generosity is the way of Christ, which is the very reason, by the way, we are to be generous givers as well. Now look, uh, there is a host of outcomes, products of our giving, which Paul talks about in this passage, and so we'll talk about them too, and they're all wonderful. But none of those are the primary reason that we are to give generously. Uh, unfortunately, there are leaders and some elements of the church who have sold the idea to believers all over the world that the reason we should give generously is because of what we receive back. Money, material blessings, divine health, all manner of wealth and prosperity. And the truth is, listen, uh, there are innumerable blessings 
material, material and otherwise, that can and often do come as a result of generous giving. But you gotta understand, those are not the reasons we're commanded by God and expected by the church fathers to give generously. So I just wanna be crystal clear on this point. The reason that we're to give generously to the work of Christ is because Jesus Christ gave generously to us. That is why we give. That's also what makes stinginess and greed and selfishness so insidious, so undermining to the church because those character traits are vehemently anti-Christ. They go against everything that he is. We followers of Jesus Christ are to emulate him, reflect him in our own lives, right? In Ephesians 5, 1, Paul said, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're supposed to live and act like Christ, which means that generosity should be a hallmark in the life of every Christian because Jesus was extravagantly generous to us. Okay, and then in response to living out that Christ-likeness that is generosity, God promises all kinds of wonderful things. Yes, of course he does. In verses six through eight, Paul says, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then verse 10, he says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, this, this is the key here, he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So obviously, as we give generously, he gives back to us generously. He heaps blessings on us. And I can't even begin to tell you in the time that we have today, all of the ways that these verses have proven true time and again in my own family. And the more that we have personally committed to God, the more we've given to him faithfully and joyfully throughout the years, he has faithfully and consistently blessed us and continues to and provides for our every need and then some. By giving us seeds, not mature fruit bearing plants. In other words, we still have to plant the seed that he gives us and work the ground to realize the fullness of his blessings in our lives. And that's actually another sermon for another day. But listen, uh, if you pray and ask for money, God may give you a job. There's some seeds there that you got to work before it turns into the blessing you're looking for. You understand what I'm saying? That's really a, a, another topic for another day, but that's a key to this verse that most people don't catch that. He says he will supply and multiply your seed. So when you ask him for something, he gives you a handful of seeds, don't complain, just start planting and working, okay? Now, beyond that, there's another reason for his generosity to us beyond simply rewarding us for our faithfulness to Christ, which Paul explains in the next verse. Let's read verse 11. He says, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul says that God is generous toward us so that we will in turn be generous toward others with what he's given us, okay? Generosity demands a response. Now, of course, God has been generous to us in ways we could never uh, pay back, right? What Christ did for us on the cross is a gift, not a loan, right? And we, we, and we know that. 
but his ongoing generosity to us in the form of the daily blessings that he pours out into our lives, which is what Paul's talking about here, that generosity demands a response. And this is the problem with the prosperity gospel, this idea that God dumps out blessings on us so that we can wallow in our own wealth and luxury while others all around us are suffering spiritually and physically. It's the very height of arrogance. Now, Paul says that God is generous toward us so that we can be generous toward others in turn. Andy Stanley says it this way. Remember what your mother told you when you had two cookies and your sister had none? Quick, eat them both before she can wrench one out of your greedy little hands. Probably not. She would say, share. What do we tell our own kids, nieces and nephews when they have more than they need and a friend or sibling has none? We tell them to share. Watching someone eat two cookies in the presence of someone who has none doesn't seem right, does it? We feel compelled to say or do something. Perhaps that's why Jesus said, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you, Matthew 5, 42. Imagine seeing the world from God's point of view. Imagine being able to see everybody in the world who has two cookies and everybody who has none all at the same time. You would probably say something. You would tell everyone to share. If God has blessed you with more than you need, it's so that you can share your abundance with those who have need. Okay, generosity demands a response, and we do that primarily, by the way, through the church. Throughout the New Testament, we see believers bringing their tithes and offerings to the church. In Acts 2 and Acts 4, and of course in Paul's travels, money was collected at the church and then distributed by the church leaders. In Acts 6, we find that the Jerusalem church had a daily feeding program that was run by the deacons, right, for the most vulnerable people among them. The church would collect funds from the believers and then would use that money to minister to those in need in the congregation, spiritually and physically. And then Paul explains at the end of verse 11 that when we're generous by giving through the church, God is ultimately glorified as he's worshiped as a result of the generosity of his people. So you can see how it all comes back to Jesus Christ as our focus always, even through the material blessings that he pours into our own lives. And so when we're blessed, Listen, when we're blessed with jobs and income and all the things that make our lives better, we we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that receiving those blessings was the sole point of the blessing. Like at that point, it's come full circle. No, not even a little bit. Okay, apple trees don't consume their own apples. The reason an apple tree produces apples is not to feed its health. The apple tree doesn't consume its own apples. No, the reason the apple tree produces apples is for the health of all those around it, those who need that fruit to grow and become healthy themselves. And so producing apples is not what makes an apple tree healthy. No, producing apples is a sign that the tree is healthy and is helping others to become healthy as well. Okay, God doesn't pour out blessings in your life just so that you can be healthy, blessed, Now, he pours out blessings in your life so that you can help others become healthy and blessed as well. Okay, let's read the rest of the chapter, verse 12 to the end. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. 
God is glorified through your proclamation of the gospel in your life and the generosity of your contribution while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Can you see how important generosity is? When we're generous with that which God has blessed us, we actually cause other people to glorify him. I could call people out of this congregation right now. Obviously, I won't. People that, that God has allowed us as a church body to bless immeasurably. And they will tell you how it changed their entire life and how they've become closer to God because of it. I can tell you stories all day about how this church has blessed me and my family in ways that have changed my life and drawn me closer to Christ. It all comes back to him. Yet there's one more really important point to be made here when when we talk about generosity because what we define as generous can be very subjective, right? It's different for every person. And so when Paul uses the word generosity in verse 13, that's the, the Greek word haplites. It literally means a copious bestowal or bountifulness or liberality, right? In other words, he's definitely not referring to our leftovers or our excess or whatever we think we can spare. No, Paul is talking about copious, bountiful, liberal giving. This is lavish giving, extravagant giving. Okay, generosity, true generosity is extravagant giving. That's what it means to be generous, and it fits perfectly with the teachings and the example of Jesus himself. And so for us to get a good understanding of just how extravagant Jesus commanded us to be in our generosity, we're going to compare some of the old covenant requirements with the new covenant requirements subsequent to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ because when we talk about giving specifically in the church when we talk about giving money a lot of people want to know what are they required to give according to scripture um, and most of the time they ask about tithing I get asked this question all the time two questions people ask me uh, do I have to be water baptized to be saved uh, or is it a sin to not be water baptized and then people ask me about the tithe I get asked the question all the time, which we see references to in both the Old and New Testaments, okay? And so we're going to compare what the two say. So people want to know, basically what they're asking is, am I still required to tithe under the New Covenant? And this is important because it has a direct bearing on how we define what generosity is. And again, ultimately, what we really need to know is, what did Jesus have to say about it, right? Because it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I think or what I have to say. What matters is what Jesus said. So we're going to talk about tithing in a minute. And more to the point, how much giving equals true generosity. And just before we do that, I'm going to define tithing because that's even misunderstood in the church today. The word tithe in the Hebrew language, it's ma'asar, which literally means a tenth or a payment of a tenth. So 10% of everything that was owned, of everything that was gained, all of the increase in the Old Testament, 10% was to be given to the work of God according to the command of God under the Mosaic law, which is recorded in Leviticus 27, 30 through 34. It says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. That's a uh, a reference from an earlier in the chapter regarding those who wanted to buy back unclean animals that were not fit to be sacrificed unto the Lord. So they could buy them back from the priest if they added a fifth to the original value. In verse 32, And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that shall pass 
under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So when we talk about tithes and offerings in the church, the tithe is literally 10% of your increase, of your income. So, for instance, if you make $1,000 a week, $52,000 a year, and you put $50 a week in the offering at church, that is not a tithe. People tell me, they talk to me all the time about their tithe when it's not a tithe because it's not 10% of your income. So just so we're clear, that is an offering, okay, but it's not a tithe. You're only tithing if you're actually giving 10% of all your increase according to Scripture. And we see that under the Old Covenant here. In fact, we also see it long before the Old Covenant or Mosaic Law was even instituted. So it predates the Old Covenant Law. So it's not just a facet of the Mosaic Law. It's been a part of God's design, in fact, from the beginning. In Genesis 28, 22, Jacob commits 10% or a tithe of everything that God gives him back to the Lord. In Genesis chapter 14, when God gave Abraham a great victory over the king of Elam and he was returning from battle, he was met by a priest of the Lord named Melchizedek. And during that encounter, Abraham gives the priest a tenth or a tithe of all the spoil that he'd taken from the losing armies. Abraham tithed on all of his increase back to the Lord through the priest, Melchizedek. Okay, tithing was practiced long before the old covenant. So let's see what changed then from the old covenant to the new. Okay, Exodus chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, uh, the book of Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament, we see the old covenant, including the 10 commandments, of course, all spelled out. These were rules for God's people to live by that touched every area of their lives. Rules about what to eat, what not to eat, what to wear, what they shouldn't wear, where to worship, when to worship, how to worship. There were rules about how to treat each other, how much to give to God, where to give it, when to give it, how to give it. These rules governed everything that God's people did on a daily basis. So the Lord put forth before the people this set of expectations for giving. There were expectations for giving their time, their energy, their abilities, their money, their goods, their devotion, and it was all intended to be a form of worship from his people back to him. Again, it was the response to his generosity by his people being generous in turn. And yet under the old covenant, it was all based on percentages. Percentages of their lives, percentages of their possessions. You gave a percentage of your time, a percentage of your money, a percentage of your life. Everything was regulated to offer God worship. So the first four verses of Leviticus chapter 16 says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. In other words, hey, pal, you can't just waltz in here anytime you feel like it and make offerings to me. If you do, you're going to die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Listen to how specific he is with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He doesn't say bring five or ten, bring however many you want. You bring a bull, right? You bring a ram. 
He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. This whole chapter, really the entire book of Leviticus goes on and on and on about when and how and how much to give to God. These were very specific rules about exactly how to worship him. And then again in Leviticus 27, 30 through 34, the tithe is introduced into the Mosaic law, the old covenant, and equally important to the fact that he commanded his people to tithe here is to note the fact that God says the tithe already belongs to him. Again, verse 30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So he already owns it all. And here he's saying, as a part of your worship, I want you to offer it back to me so that it can be used to carry on and support the work of the ministry. And so even the tithe was intended to be our generosity in response to his generosity. So under the old covenant, all giving, whether it be worship, sacrifice, devotion, it was regulated. And what portion of each aspect of your life that was to be given to God was spelled out in all of these rules and regulations. And then along comes Jesus, and everything changes, all right? We know that we're now living under the new covenant, and there's a lot of talk these days about grace, as there should be. Without grace, we'd all be in big trouble, right? Scripture's very clear on the matter. We're saved by His grace through our faith, Ephesians 2.8. So without a doubt, Grace is something we need to talk about. Where this issue of grace becomes distorted, however, is when we start believing that the law of grace under the new covenant, as so many people represent it today, somehow makes everything that is required by God of us less. And so as long as we have faith, it doesn't really matter how much we give to God. That is a, not only a big misunderstanding, that's a big mistake. Okay, the definition of grace, the definition of grace is Jesus Christ dying on a cross for you and me. He gave everything. Grace doesn't mean that he's made a way for us to give less. Grace means he's made a way for us to give everything. It's our generous, generous response to him. And just in case you're not convinced, Let's look at how this covenantal relationship with God changes under the new covenant according to Jesus. This isn't me, I'm reading you what he said, okay? Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. First of all, the iota is the Greek word for yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the dot was the part of the letter used to differentiate between the Hebrew letters, the most seemingly insignificant parts of the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, the tiniest, most insignificant part of every letter of every law will be fulfilled in Christ. Now listen to this part. Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. He doesn't say whoever omits 
or deletes one of these commandments, he says, whoever even relaxes one of the least of them will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. These are very strong, very clear words. And as we read on, we see exactly what Jesus was talking about. He didn't come to set us free from having to make any commitments to God. He came because by our own power, we were never, ever, 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 ever going to be able to earn our way into a right relationship with him. We could not and we cannot. So Jesus did what we cannot do. He fulfilled the law. He satisfied the requirements of the law. His grace did for us what was impossible for us to accomplish. And so Jesus then makes very clear crystal clear what our generous response to his grace is to be under the new covenant. Matthew 5 verse 21, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, meaning those under the old covenant, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you think that got easier? That isn't easier than the old rule. It's much easier to simply say you're guilty of murder if you actually murder someone. Right? Than it is to say now. You're in the same way liable to be judged if you're simply angry with your brother, right? That requirement didn't get easier for us under the new covenant. It just got much more difficult. Verse 27, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Are you kidding me? That didn't get easier. I mean, the requirement for staying free from adultery under the new covenant just became far more difficult. Verse 31, Jesus said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Clearly, that didn't get easier. Verse 33, Jesus said again, you've heard that it was said to those of old. In other words, under the old covenant, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Here we go again. That requirement didn't get easier. Verse 38, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You're darn right. I mean, yeah. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. What? But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I don't know if there's one of you, if I smacked you right now in the face, you would turn the other cheek and say, hit me again. You'd lay me out on the floor. If anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. He's not saying if you're walking along with your buddy for a mile and you're really tired, go two miles. No, if anyone forces you 
To go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. That definitely did not get easier. What he's requiring of us now under the new covenant is asking far more from us than before. Verse 33, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's right. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is infinitely more difficult than hating your enemies. And yet that is to be our generous response to his generous gift of grace in our own lives. Okay, In in the old covenant, God's people were required to go so far for God. Under the new covenant, we're required to go all the way. In other words, Jesus says, no more percentages. I want it all. I want all of you, I want all of your heart, all of your worship, all of your energy, all of your devotion, all of your possessions, all of your resources, all of your passion. I want you to commit all that you are and everything you have and all that you care about to me. Under the old covenant, he required a portion of your day devoted to worship and prayer. Under the new covenant, what does he require? First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, rejoice. Always pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Can you see the difference? This isn't a part-time deal. God wants full-time, full-on commitment and nothing else will do. And likewise, with our money, We compare the old and new covenants and we see that he requires so much more of us now than he did under the old covenant in every area of life and yet we treat money different. Why? Well, I know why. Because we don't want to give away our stuff. Our income. Right? We like our stuff. We work hard for our money. I work hard for my income. I like my stuff too. I'm not telling you, by the way, that you have to go out and uh, empty your checking account tomorrow and put it all in the offering or send it to a missionary. What I'm saying is that the same principles that apply to every other part of our lives in this context of the old and new covenants also applies to our money. Under the old covenant, he required 10% of our income to be given back to him. Under the new covenant, I'm telling you, he wants it all. Well, what does that mean, right? I mean, aren't we taught in Scripture to take care of our families, to pay our bills, to store up for lean times so that we can minister to others, including our own families? Absolutely we are. So we don't sell everything, give all of our money to the poor, and go live under a bridge. That's not what, that's not what he tells us to do. However, in Luke 11, uh, verse 42, Jesus is chastising the Pharisees for their lack of understanding and commitment to God. The people most committed to the Mosaic law. He's chastising them for their lack of understanding and commitment to God. And he says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done. He's saying you tithe on your income and all your increase on your possessions, on your wealth. You're supposed to. Those you ought to have done. Yes, you are supposed to tithe. But Jesus continues without neglecting the others, without neglecting all the rest of it. I don't just want 10%. 
I want it all. He's saying, you, give, you, give, you guys give your 10%, great. You should, but can't you see there's so much more that the Father wants from you? You're so focused on percentages, but God wants all of you. We get so hung up in the church today about whether or not we're supposed to give 10% of our income. Are you kidding me? I can't remember. In fact, I don't think my wife and I have ever only given 10% of our income to the church and the ministry. We start out every paycheck giving 10% of our gross income to the church as a place where we start. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We start out every paycheck personally giving 10% of our gross income to the local church. And then every gift to missions, every special event, every special need, every guest teacher is over and above that. So when we look at our overall giving to the church at the end of each year, I'm telling you it's far more than 10%. And I'm telling you that because I want you to know that we're not asking or expecting anyone to do anything that we're not doing ourselves. And so we give to the building fund and the missions fund and the outreach fund and every single person that speaks at or into this church. We give to special projects and specific needs as they arise. All of that is well over and above our tithe, the 10% of our gross income that we give at every single paycheck. Why? Because Jesus wants us to give everything just as he gave us everything. We shouldn't be asking how much do I have to give? We should be asking how much can I give? See, when we give back, we become generous people. And our generosity is not only a form of worship back to him, but it also causes others to worship him in turn. We've seen it firsthand over and over again. It all points back to him because at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray.